Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Excellent. Fantastic. <coughs> 
Alright, so after that little interlude, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our first postgraduate speaker. Alex is from the Department of Biology and Biochemistry, uh, working with John Beeching and Rod Scott. Now, excuse my Latin pronunciation here, but it's Phaseolus uh, vulgaris, is that right? So that's what we're going to hear about today. Alex, over to you. Thank you. We're going to have a switch from physics to a food crop, which is common beans. I'm looking at particularly identification, genetic diversity, population structure, and the genetic stability of African common beans taken from Zambia. And I just chose this picture to demonstrate the genetic diversity of common beans in terms of seed color. <clears throat> so, before I tell you so much of what I'm doing, I need to give you the background about common beans. Many growth types have been recognized in top common beans. These are the climbers, and these are the bush types, and some intermediates do exist. But why particularly are we paying attention to the common beans? It is a food security crop, and the food security here comes in because of the way in which the staggering pattern of eating common beans is done. It is eaten right from the green pods, dry beans, up to the leaves. So it makes it a wider period of eating. And it is an income generating crop. Then the symbiotic association that exists between the nitrogen fixing bacteria and the roots <coughs> helps to improve the soil. So farmers sometimes grow it to improve just their soil. In terms of nutrients composition, common beans is the second dietary source of proteins after soybean. And its protein has a higher content of lysine. Lysine here is one of the essential amino acids. In addition to the normal growth, it is required for other functions, such as the development of antibodies and calcium absorption. Uh, common beans is also rich in vitamins, iron, zinc, and it is the third source of calories after cassava and beans for, sorry, after cassava and maize in African context. In terms of production, it has a wider adaptation. You can see it is being grown on a very dry, cracked soil here, and it is produced mainly <coughs> under subsistence agriculture by women, meaning that if we promote its use, we are actually providing opportunity to African women and grown twice in a year. Unfortunately, Unlike most food crops that would add one center of diversity, common beans were domesticated from two centers. With these two centers gave rise to two highly differentiated gene pools, the Mesoamerican region and the Anden region, but the two region can the two bean gene pool can intercross and give rise to this. So this becomes a challenge as we shall see along. Specific studies have confirmed these two gene pools, whether morphologically, biochemically, or any other methods. So they confirm that in Europe, the Anden beans, which are large seeded beans, predominates. In China, is Mesoamerican beans. Brazil and sugar is Mesoamericans. But for the African situation, it is both beans are present in almost unequal proportion. This almost makes African beans, Africa actually, to be the secondary center of diversity for common beans. However, the common bean has a number of challenges. 
they're talking the first one here as sell-off compatibility. Sell-off compatibility here means the, a single flower can pollinate itself, or flowers from the same plant can pollinate themselves. This has challenges in that if a farmer acquires seed, he will become reluctant in buying more seeds because the genetic composition of this seed will not change. However, for the breeders, it is very difficult to generate material that are diverse as a result of this cell of compatibility. We have other challenges of pests and diseases, biotic stress, and lack of a trusted seed company in African context is another big challenge. So, the aim of my project is to assess genetic stability, structure, and population of within and between these land races, which I'm going to share with you, and to assess their genetic stability. Genetic stability here, we are trying to follow the farmer's practice. If they harvest their seeds, they keep some for the next planting season while they consume the rest. So we want to follow, if you start with seed A after four years, do you still have seed A or it hybridized to some, something else? Then we want to relate the Zambian common beans to the two centers of origin that I've already talked about. This study is very important because we're already screening feature potential breeding lines can lead to the registration of these local, seed those local seeds if we prove that the material does not change. And it can lead to the development of farmers' managed seed system, where farmers manage their own seed and generating knowledge for academic purposes. So these are the plant materials that I'm working with. Well, working with four Zambian common bean larvaces. A larvace here means a material that is um, grown and managed by farmers. It has not gone through any improvement program, locally produced and managed. It has its advantages because they're adapted to the locations under which they are found. So we, we chose these four materials, which are predominantly grown by farmers. In addition to this, we added some other six materials from SEAT. SEAT here means Center for International Tropical Agriculture that has a mandate for collecting and preserving zamplasm. So we wanted this because the, we already said there are two gene pool. We needed reference zamplasm to show how our clustering pattern will behave. We also added additional Zambian line based on my experience with African farmer. If they acquire unimproved seed and grow it over four to five years, they will assume that is their own seed and name it locally. We wanted additional line to make us prove that concept as well and a commercial line. So, and we particularly interested in the land races because most studies have shown their potential as sources of genes for either drug tolerance, disease resistance. That's why we want to tap them into the breeding program. So I chose to use two approaches molecular approach and morphological approach. And the molecular approach, we are using short sequence repeat markers because this has been used for a number of studies in the common beans. And the short sequence repeat markers here just represent uh, the sequence of a DNA that is repeated after some sequence. 
that we can see ATC, ATC repeated here. So these markers are designed flanking this region of the repeat units. And these repeats differ from individual to individual or from population to population. That's why we shall use them in studying this diversity. So this is a part that took me, that was the whole entire first year screening this. We started with the 50 and we chose 28 that we are currently using. After this, we need now to isolate, which we isolated up to 500 DNA samples, 400 from each land race, and provided the optimum condition to make the entire sequence in the PCR. After that, we now separate, because the different primers here produce different sizes, we need to separate the sizes, which we did using capillary electrophoresis, and they are the sizes that we shall now use to separate them. And these sizes, we shall then call them, which I'm using two softwares, Peak Scanner and R, and is that which we shall use for that analysis. Whereas on the morphological side, we are using both qualitative and quantitative approach. And uh, the qualitative approach is done by scoring the already known colors for these different types. So we just look for the presence or absence of these colors. Whereas the quantitative one, we do actual measurements and record them and all this data subjected to statistical analysis to supplement each other. Sorry, sorry for the faint clustering. So far, of the 28 SSR we are using, we have got the complete data from the 12 SSRs, and that is what I'm sharing with you here. We are able to see that among the four Zambian uh, land races, they have clustered into two groups, and separated by our reference line, we can uh, clearly say these are the Mesoamerican beans and these are the Anden beans. And uh, these other subgrouping started to come up, but because farmers keep admixture, what they call group A is not purely A. That's why if you look at a land race like Mbalala mixture, as featured everywhere in this subclustering, meaning that it falls within the different subgrouping. And that's what we want the study to tell us clearly. Looking at it from a two-dimensional plane, we can still see that the two clustering is maintained, the Mesoamerican beans and the Anden beans. But here, we what we can also see is that the distance between the Solway's beans and Mbalala beans is much closer compared to the one of Lundazi and Lusaka yellow. These all have effects when it comes to breeding a variety, which we need to take note of them. But interestingly, other subclustering has started appearing, and we are hopeful that when we generate the data for all the 28 SSRs, we are going to get the adequate information about this clustering. In terms of population structure, K would represent the defined population, but for the common beans at K2, this is representing the two gene pool. We see that both the Anden and Mesoamerican beans are present, and at K4 would represent the four land races, and we are seeing them clearly, but we see in my laptop it appears blue, but here it's appearing purple. We see Mbalala mixture having dots throughout <coughs> of this major group. 
And at K6, because we predict more subpopulation to come up, we are going to get more, and that will be defined in terms of number. We can, that can be done with the adequate number, sorry, when the adequate information is generated. Going by the population, not by the individual, we can see that the Zambian being still clustered into two main groups. Baralamixa maintained its association with the Solwezi and the Lusaka yellow with the Lundazi beans, and the Seat reference line took their expected position. In terms of genetic diversity parameters, the larvaces differed significantly when we looked at the NASE diversity index, the IS being Malala mixture, followed by Lundazi, Solwezi. These are the kind of information that we want to generate at the end of this study, because they are very important. And uh, they also, this study also shows that the SSRs differ in the way at which they perform. For the common beans, it's particularly important because the two centers of origin affect the performance of the SSRs. An SSRs designed from the Mesoamerican beans is more active with the Mesoamerican individuals than the Anden. That is reflected here. The BM20 and the C33 were designed from the Mesoamerican beans, but we have so far seen that the Zambian beans are uh, and then predominant. So that's why they affected their performance. They produced the lowest number of alleles. So in summary, so far up to date, I have op optimized a data collection and analysis procedure for this study and have proven that SSRs are affected for within and between population diversity analysis and confirm the existence of the two gene pools that exist within the Zambian common beans. Though not shown here, we have also shown that morphological data supports the molecular data, the clustering pattern is maintained, and the farmer's practice of admixture has been confirmed by the appearing of the subclustering. The low rate of crossing has also been detected. Thank you so much for listening. I would like to thank the University of Bath for providing the fund, Crop Innovation Cellar Fellow of Africa for providing the bench fee and stipend, uh, National Crop Resources Research Institute, my institute where I work in Uganda, for supporting me and my family in Uganda, and several individuals that have made this work possible, supervisors John Richard Beeching and Rod Scott, Christopher of Mathematical and Statistical Help, Daniel Eng, Biology Biochemistry, Sergio of European Molecular Biology Lab, and the lab members of 152153. I leave you with this picture, which is a work being done in Tanzania, supporting women in producing good quality seeds of the common beans. This demonstrates the potential of beans in providing job and food for African context. Thank you. Okay, so thanks very much, Alex, for getting us off to a fantastic start there. Do we have questions? Yeah. What, what about gastronomical properties of these beans? Are they better than what we buy in uh, Sainsbury's? 
Well, in terms of tests, if I could slightly take you to In terms of tests, well, it's not much to explain, but if you look at the position of Brazil, one would expect Brazil to be growing much of this, but Brazil is growing more of this. So the market preference differs. Here they prefer black small seeded bean and red small seeded bean. As I said, the European beans is predominated by Andean. There is no much difference I, I'm, I'm thinking about in terms of taste because the nutritional composition is the same for the common beans, large or small, but it's just the preference in terms of color that makes the difference. Yeah? Thanks for the thought, Alex. Thank you. I just wanted to check on the Mbala bean mixture. Yes. Is that the same plant that produces this variety? I wasn't quite sure because, or is that from different plants that you gather the mixture? What these farmers do, they have different plants. That's different plants, different seed types that they grow in the same plot and they call it air. But what we are aware of is that the different seed type there could be different subpopulations. But they lump it as, as one because they practice what is called seed admixture. They are not sure if a red or a black bean seed can perform in the next season. So they want to have both in the same field. What performs better, they carry them all along. It's not from the same plant, they're from different plants. Okay. Uh, yeah, sure. Another one? <coughs> Why not Uganda? Is there a particular reason you chose Zambia? Yes, the, the reason for choosing Zambia will actually flows back to the reason for choosing the common beans. Um, it was at a point when the university had given the tuition, I needed the stipend, and there was Self Help Africa that is working on common beans in Zambia. But the knowledge being generated is applicable in African context at large. Yeah. Okay, maybe I can ask one just very quickly. Um, so you mentioned one of the issues, one of the challenges being issues of trust in terms of a trusted seed supplier that farmers could get seeds from. Is there a general issue with subsistence farming that if a farmer can grow a crop, keep some of the beans to use next season, that is effectively free. So surely it will always be very hard to convince a farmer to pay money to buy seeds from any company versus what they can keep for free. How, so from a policy point of view, how would you ever convince a farmer to buy a particular variety? What do we do as my research institute? Because when we generate seed for the Ugandan case, we are not mandated to multiply the seed. The foundation seed is given to the seed company who does the multiplication and sales. So what we then do as the scientists from the research site is to set up what, what we call, we work with research farmer groups. And with these research farmer groups, we conduct what is called a results demonstration where 
we plant the improved line against their locally saved lines, and at the end of it all, harvest the product, compare the yield, such that when they see, they can be in a position to believe what you tell them. It's mainly by result demonstration. Okay, so yes. uh, free, uh, try before you buy. Try before you buy. Okay. Yes. Fair enough. So any, any final questions for Alex? Yeah? Maybe one question. When you showed your population distribution, there were quite sharp borders between those. Yes. I was wondering, I guess the x-axis was um, just spatial. Yes. Um, yes. Why is there more mixture? I guess that the, yeah, so the region you're in really depends on which seed you're growing. And in a globalizing world, I'd expect there to be a bit more mixture. But why, why is it so distributed? Why are there so sharp borders? Well, I, I, the, the four land races are actually not picked from nearby farmers. They are from four distinct geographical locations within Zambia. And uh, in terms of seeds, there are always mixtures or overlapping with the nearby community because of the way they move. Either you pick from a relative or buy from a local market. But because these are from isolated regions from each within Zambia, that's why they are more or less distinct. However, because they are, these regions are more or less close to the border, if we take samples across the other border, we could even find them being almost the same. Probably that's what I would get. Okay, so if there are more questions for Alex, I suggest maybe we should leave them for the tea break. I'm sure he'll be happy to talk some more about his research. Let's thank him once again for a super talk. Okay, so from biology uh, up to the, to the main parade, to physics, part of the physics next. Uh, and the speaker from physics is T.K. Liu, who's going to be talking about uh, WS2, I guess, and that's tungsten disulfide. Yeah. So I should understand this. <laughs> A little bit better than my Latin. Uh, tungsten disulfide nanostructures, uh, chemical vapor deposition, growth, and tuning of properties. Spintronics applications. So, over to you. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Zhishun Liu. I'm from the physics department. Uh, today I'm here to talk about uh, some novel two dimensional nanostructure uh, materials that, uh, uh, which can tailor for the spintronics applications. So, talking about the two dimensional materials, first, we all know about graphene, which has been uh, uh, the most researched material uh, during the last decades, I think. Then, mm, 
graphene is a strictly two-dimensional, one-atom thick material <coughs> drilling from graphite or crystal by two Manchester scientists in 2010, and they won the Nobel Prize for it. However, graphene is not the only two-dimensional material in this two-dimensional material family. Um, currently, um, there's a hot research topic focusing on the uh, similar materials to graphene. Uh, which is so-called the transition metal dichrocogenite, a short for TMDs. And uh, like graphene is from graphite, the, uh, the two-dimensional TMD films is from the uh, TMD layer, the crystals. You can think of that. And uh, as you can see highlights here, oh sorry, as you can see highlights here in the periodic table, uh, there are around 40 combinations of these transition metal and charcoalogens. And I am focusing on these Thomson disulfides and Thomson disulfides, which are semiconductors like graphene. And here, is their, here is their atomic structure. As you can see, that unlike graphene, the uh, single layer of this material is not strictly one atom layer. It's actually combined three atom layers uh, with a Thomson layer inside two uh, sandwich inside two sulfur or selenium layers. So, this material can be very important for developing the uh, new field of the so-called spintronics. So what is it? Uh, spintronics device is, uh, is using the spin of the electron instead of the charge of the electron we use generally these days for our electronic device. So, for spin, you can like, see it as a tiny magnet. Uh, because of the precession of, uh, of, of the electron around its own axis, uh, which causing the spin up or spin down, uh, depending what's the direction of the precession. And then for the spintronics materials, it's, it is very important that all the spin can align, uh, can all align collectively, right? As you can see here. Um, there, is, there are a lot of hot research going on about like develop a, a spintronic device for the memories of our uh, new generation of computers. By achieving this, we have to, achieve, uh, to develop these two devices called spin valve and spin field effect transistors. Today, because the time is limited, so I'm not going to details how these two devices work. Uh, but basically, you just need to know that all, all these devices need, uh, uh, need a material in which these uh, collective spin alignments can be achieved, right? And, and also, if the material can be atomically thin, that's even better. So our material, tungsten disulfide, fill in these needs. Uh, Thomson disulfide offer a uh, spin polarization, but how this happens? Um, uh, then here, let's look at the atomic structure of the Thomson disulfide. It's one layer of this material. As you can see, there's an inversion of symmetry in these single layers, which causing an in-plane net electric dipole. And these electric dipoles will cancel in a two layer adjacent to each other. You can see why is direct, uh, this direction, why is that direction. 
and cancel with each other, then the invention asymmetry will disappear. So if you want to restore this asymmetry, you have to apply an external electric field to break this symmetry to create the inversion asymmetry again, right? So the electric uh, dipole uh, across the unicell will create a magnetic field along the crystals, um, which, um, will causing, which will causing the energy level uh, uh, becomes being polarized. Also, the energy will split it well, large, well, the energy level will well split it, like here, that like is showing here. This is very similar to the Stern Galactic experiment in year two quantum physics. Uh, the only difference here is they are using an external uh, magnetic fields, while in our material, the magnetic field is intrinsic. So, coming to my PhD, my, my, the, the last year of my PhD, I was trying to grow these kind of uh, film structures as film materials that uh, to do all the characterization or device stuff. So I was using the chemical vapor deposition way, which is a bottom-up method to grow the, uh, grow the materials, as, long as, this, uh, as well as these two. So um, like basically, it's just uh, you get some gas phase precursors, and they re react with, with each other, and then uh, deposit it on the substrate. Uh, so depending on the gas phase uh, precursors, you have many very apparently you can see that you, you have you can have many choice of reactions you can use to achieve this goal. While I am using this uh, sulfurization of the tungsten trioxide, tungsten trioxide to tungsten disulfide way. While if you see these two tungsten trioxide and tungsten disulfide, the crystal lines they have a very big difference. So. That means it's not just a simple substitution of the sulfur by uh, of the oxygen by sulfur. So we believe it is actually a decoupled two-stage reaction uh, going on there to form a reduced tungsten oxide first, then it's being sulfurized more to tungsten disulfide. So that's my experiment setup. Um, Basically, we, we get a furnace and the quartz tube across the furnace, and we have our precursor material and our substrate inside the tube, and we can like uh, vary the, the temperature in the furnace, uh, no matter under uh, under pressure, uh, under vacuum or under atmosphere pressure. Um, yeah, as I mentioned before, that my process is a decoupled one, so I guess. Um, uh, uh, reduced uh, oxide rod first. Um, then I sulfurize them more. I guess some new material phase, which you can see it's uh, out of plane nano mesh structure. Well, I look look details into these nano meshes with trans, uh, transmission electron microscope. Uh, as you can see, that is the mesh is actually a nano plate, a triangle nano plate, nano plate in both out of the nano rods. So here the thought that if I can make these nano rods well separated on the substrates, then I sulfurize them, maybe I can achieve the in-plane two-dimensional growth. So I do that, I diluted the nano rods on the substrates and I sulfurize them. Guess what? We get the in-plane nano films. 
and the shape agree with the growth mechanism, which means we get the right thing, right? So after the growth stage, um, the next aim is to try to probe and uh, tune in these materials. By doing so, I was using this scanning tunneling microscope uh, so for STM, STM, so STM is just is basically basically imaging the uh, um, electron density uh, on the on, on the surface based on the quantum tunneling effect. Uh, imagine you have a atomic atomic sharp metallic tip. Uh, it's close to a surface within around one nanometers per se, and. Uh, the wave function of the electron on the tip and the surface will overlap with each other, and there will be a turning current through either through the tip to the uh, surface or <laughs> the surface to tip. Then you scan in this tip around the surface, you will get the distribution of the electron uh, or, uh, around the atom on the surface. Therefore, this technique is very good for our uh, two-dimensional material because our material is basically just surface, right? Uh, that's uh, atomic resolution image, uh, SDM, uh, SDME image of uh, Thomson disenalyzed surface. As you can see, this, uh, as I, sh I showed before, the atomic structure, as you can see here, is, is well hexagonal structures. Um, yeah, besides probing the material, the, the, the actual aim I want is to tune in the energy, uh, tune in the energy to achieve switching on and off the spin polarization. So by doing so, I'm still using the SDM tip while I added another electrode, which I call, which we call the electrical gate, and through the electrical gate we apply external electric fields to, as I, sh as I said before, to break the inversion symmetry in the multi-layers, as well as uh, tuning the energy levels which contribute to the electron transport. For example, per se here, we don't apply any, uh, any gate voltage and we get uh, turning current versus the bias uh, curve. Showing here, you see that both these two energy levels is ab uh, above this uh, Fermi, uh, uh, above this so-called Fermi level, which means both these two energy level contributes participated in the uh, electron transports, which means we don't have a net spin polarized current. And when I apply a, a positive bias, well, the Fermi level shifts even downwards, so it's not good either. However, when I apply a negative bias gate, gate voltage. The Fermi level shifts upwards, right between these two splitted energy level. Therefore, we have only one of these spin polarized uh, energy level will participate in the electron transport. Then we get a electro uh, spin polarized current. So you can see here uh, that's the shifting according to the gate voltage. Therefore, for future work, first I want to enlarge the domain size of my films, apparently, and other films from the nanorods, so we can treat it as a CD assist growth. What does it mean? It means we can grow our films wherever we want. We can like put all the nanorods wherever we want to grow the films, and they will grow there and not nowhere else. 
Then I will grow some bilayers to do the proper gating experiment to see what's going on there. And third, I will do some real spin sensitive or relatively characterization for these films when gating them. For example, the spin polarized FDM, uh, etc. Thank you. That's all. Thank you, CQ. Do we have questions? Yeah, please. Could I ask about your, your process, how repeatable it is, and also whether you have problems with impurities? Are you mean the films? Yeah. Uh, yeah, for now, you see, uh, when we do some growth of these kind of structures, we have to like, uh, like control the parameters very strict. So when we have some minor vibrations or change these films were not showing again. So for now, uh, we can't grow very large size of these films and only sometimes we grow some small islands here and there. And also some say some say they can't grow the films during winter, uh, during summer, but they can grow it during winter. So this thing is very hard to control, but yeah, we are trying to, as I said, we are trying to enlarge the size and the, Achieve the CDS as well. Yeah. So, can I just follow up on that? How big are you, would you like them to be? And that you, they're described as nanostructures, so is this big in a nano sense? Or uh, yeah, as you can see, that our, our films is around like micron size. It's actually large enough to do uh, many devices or many characterization, but apparently for future, for, as I said, for future, the memory stuff. We need like even wafer size large, but that's not my job. I'm a PhD student. I just want to like uh, I have these concepts, and uh, that's things go to the industry. Yeah, yeah. No, the question wasn't aimed at you know what are you going to do about it, but just in terms of the potential, it's presumably enormous in terms of scaling up. Or uh, uh, we believe actually uh, we believe we can grow like hundreds of microns of this size. So. That's very large. That's, that's already a very large size for these materials to grow. Yeah. Uh, are these films two-dimensional, or there is actually a stack of uh, several layers? Uh, based on the Raman signals, uh, the Raman spectroscopy, the film is, is one layer. I think of the same smaller layer. This this one, this one here is smaller layer. Oh, we also get some. But yeah, if you see the poly po polygon structure here, some of them may be uh, bilayer or even few layers. So, but but the triangle stuff is smaller. Layer. I have a question. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you can ask you about your starting materials and your synthesis. So, in chemistry. Nowadays, more and more, when we're looking at the periodic table, we look at all the different elements and we think about cost and supply and how much actually is there on planet Earth. So I know that sulfur, very cheap, selenium, very cheap, but how about tungsten? I mean, it, is there how yeah, the reason why we choose? And why, do we have a lot? Yeah, the, uh, the reason I, why I choose tungsten trioxide to, 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 to be the precursor I started from, yeah. because it's very cheap compared, so, to, compared to other precursors, is. It's relatively cheap, so. Okay. So, so I, I heard. I always thought tungsten was a bit endangered, that we were going to run out because I don't think it's a problem anymore because it was used for light bulbs, incandescent 
Alan, but now we have our LED lights, right? So lots of tungsten for you. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, in, in these days, everything is in danger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and, and for these materials, because as I have said, it's uh, two-dimensional and uh, spin, and can ge uh, generate a giant spin-splitting material. That's the only thing we all, we know now. So we have to use the tungsten. Sure. Yeah. No other ways. Sorry. Any more questions? Yeah. Uh, we see a lot of CBD talks on depositing tin disulfide, etc. on graph on things like graphene and other small nanostructures in chemistry a lot. Okay. And I was just as so we see the chemistry side of it quite a lot. Would you say you're inherently similar and it's in the middle? Or do you think you have a very different physical side of it? Oh uh, yeah. As I showed here there's a new phase material phase of the yeah. of the mesh thing. Yeah. That's the first I never see any papers writing about that, so that's the first thing. And this thing can be used in the chemical, electrochemical stuff. Well, also, I think for now, all of them they just grow the films directly, and they don't they don't care and they don't know where the films will grow. So if I if I can achieve this city growth, I can like control it well. So that's very new, I think. Yeah. So and also, yeah, it's very new. Any final questions? No? Okay, let's thank TK one more time. So my name is Christina. I work in um, computer science, especially in the human-computer interaction department. Um, just to keep it really simple, human-computer interaction is looking at what um, people are capable of and then trying to design programs, systems after that, um, basically looking mainly at cognitive psychology from my side anyway. I'm very interested in cognitive psychology. I try to base my work on that. Um, so the motivation for my research, mostly, if anyone knows me here, um, I am not OCD, but I'm really, really obsessed with trying to streamline um, and make things affect anything in life, just really effective, efficient, really easy to do. It's probably based on my laziness. Um, so, the aim of my initial part of my research, I'm just going to go through this really quickly, um, is to look at how people spend their time when they come up with ideas, so idea generation. Um, for the purpose of uh, future words used in this talk, I'm going to change this to ideation. I love this word. Um, I'm going to be saying it probably a hundred times in the next ten minutes, so I apologize for that. Um, the next aims of this research, I will have to explain through the talk, so I'm just going to give them to you now. If you don't understand them, I hope that's okay. Um, basically, what we like to know in my research is, um, do foraging theory stopping rules explain our choice to switch 
from one category to another when you're idea generating, or switch from one task to another. Um, does need to manage categories, so when you are ideating, are you coming up with ideas within certain categories? Um, does this need to manage categories, maybe explain the benefits of why we want to form, give people free-form interfaces as opposed to just make you write out a list? Um, and essentially, actually, what I'm looking at, and I am computer science, essentially what I want to find out is, can I design anything that will support you when you come up with ideas in your ideation tasks? Um, ideation, really simple, I love the word. I think it sounds really complex, it's not actually at all. It's basically just a really broad question and you have to come up with ideas. It's a little bit like brainstorming, but the official term for brainstorming is for several people. Ideation is just one person. Um, so ideation tasks are idea generation. Um, they are things like how can we increase the number of tourists visiting the city of Bath? Most responses to that would be let's not. Um, <laughs> But essentially, I'd like you to come up with a long list of ideas, no matter how outrageous they are. So the good thing about ideation and idea generation and brainstorming is there isn't really sort of judgment on the ideas yet. So you can come up with something outrageous as long as you put it down. Um, I call them accumulation tasks because they're not like a mathematical equation where you have a result or a couple of results. Um, these ones, there's really an end goal here. So ill-defined problems with here's goal sounds a bit negative, but actually what I mean is just I'm not saying what's 2 plus 2, and I'm not requiring the answer for. Um, I just want to quickly go over a couple of bits of research from the past that um, I've been looking at, and the reason why I find it, my research interesting. Um, so one bit of research is done by a lady called Oviat and her team in 2012. So what they have done is gone through a whole lot of experiments, and they found Lots of really interesting results. I'm going to give you one of their results, which is that they were comparing pen-based interfaces, so here's a tablet, write on the tablet with a pen, versus keyboard interfaces, so just typing it on the screen. Um, and what they found, which I found really interesting, was that they're saying that keyboards hinder ideation. So if you have a keyboard, it stops you from coming up with more ideas, rather than if you had a pen, you'd be able to, be able to come up with more ideas. And they're saying this very basically, keyboards hinder fluency. So keyboards stop you from being fluent. I don't know if I agree with this. I don't know if maybe what they're actually failing to see is that it's freeform versus linear. So if you're using a keyboard, you can of course you know, click further up and go back to some grouping of ideas and then go back to the lower ones. But I'm guessing what they mean by the pen interface is that actually you can group your ideas in different spaces, locations on the actual screen itself. Um, so that's what I'm going to try and do. So my first study, going to go even more technical here, or even more dry background, sorry guys. Um, my first study is basically just to look at one ideation task. Are we even categorizing our ideas? Because if we're not, then that's pretty simple. I'm not even going to try then <laughs> to come up with an interface to help people categorize. Um, for this, I have again based some of my research on a couple of past papers, mostly by Neistat and Strober. So they indicate that ideation is a bit like when we recall things. We, when we recall, we tend to show a category structure. So if you're making a list of animals, we tend to show a structure where we think, okay, four-legged animals, great, list those. Fur, list those. So you're trying to think in terms of categories, and that's how you end up sort of associating the next idea with the previous idea. I hope that made sense. People do that as well when they ideate, according to these guys. 
Um, therefore, if ideation is categorically structured, um, <coughs> we assume that it involves an adaptive decision to give up from one category when you get tired of it and you just can't think of anything else and move on to the next one. Um, again, further into the uh, <laughs> depth of my research. So we want to study how people make these decisions. Um, a basic way of looking at this, and this is something I've already done and I'm going to show you the results for now, is um, looking at just the basic stopping rules. So these are comparable to the mechanisms that are used to understand how animals switch from one patch to another when they do foraging. So a really simple one would be a giving up time rule, um, where basically you're searching for nuts in a particular patch or ideas in your mind. Um, a certain time has passed, 10 seconds, you can't find any more nuts, you can't find any more ideas in your head, you give up and move to another patch. You give up on your category that you're thinking in and move on to another category. Um, so basically my empirical study, really, really simple to start with. 20 participants, I'm giving them 15 minutes, an unlimited amount of ideation questions. Obviously this is a lot, so I have 20 so far, but within a 15 minute time span, that seems to be all right. Um, whenever a participant feels uh, stuck or feel like they've satisfied, satisfied a particular question, they're welcome to move on. I have asked the initial pilot study if they could try to stick to one question as much as possible, just to really see how they push themselves when they get stuck on a particular set of ideas. Um, the analysis that I've been doing is, um, is actually more than I've had up here because I found out after this analysis that there's so much more that needs to be done. Um, so there are, we look at the timings between ideas, we look at the timings between semantic categories, and we look at the timings between giving up and starting on a new idea question. Um, in order to check the timings between semantic categories, first I had to find out, are people actually clustering their ideas within semantic categories? Uh, and to do this, we've had to categorize all the ideas. So myself and an independent, um, my supervisor basically, <laughs> have been going through all of these and trying to categorize them according to the categories that were presented in the NYSTAD paper that I mentioned earlier. So they had a whole set of categories that they sort of followed for each type of question. Um, for that, I have to say yes, we found proof of clustering. Um, unfortunately, with the categories that we used from their paper, I don't think I agree with how the categories are split. Basically, we had so much um, disagreement, myself and my supervisor, how to categorize each different idea that actually we think that the whole category structure should probably be remade. However, using the exact category structure that these guys used, um, analyzing my results exactly as these, guys, as these guys used, I managed to reproduce the results. Um, do timings between and within clusters vary? Yes, however, um, we can't attribute uh, switching from one category to another to a simple giving up heuristic. And the reason why is that the timings within a cluster should technically be shorter because you know, you're in that track, you're thinking about the category, you come up with ideas quite quickly, you get stuck. So you have a long time between one idea and the next. And that's when we should see a cluster change or a category change. However, what we found is actually the second to last <laughs> um, idea is the one where people think the most almost like it took them a really long time to come up with the last idea in this cluster. And that's what made them choose to switch very quickly right after the last idea in one cluster to the next idea. 
I'm still analyzing these results. This is what I have so far. I wanted to give you something to, to think about today. Um, really quickly, future work. The reason why um, I'm looking at this is, of course, to find out whether or not we can offer preform interfaces or different types of interfaces to help people come up with ideas when they have sort of a, a problem that they need to solve. Um, further future work is uh, very popular in HCI and human-computer interaction at the moment, which is giving idea, basically other ideas, good ideas, different types of ideas to people at well-timed timings, basically. Um, <laughs> acting as a clue to continue, acting as a clue to sort of say, have you thought about this? Or you're thinking about this category right now, did you think about that? So that's basically the, uh, the aim of my future work. Thanks. Okay, questions for Christina. So, first, yes. let's start over there. Um, that's very interesting. Thanks. Um, it's not as technical as the others, I'm really. <laughs> I, I was wondering about your 20 candidates and yeah. um, how you choose them, where they come from, and whether you need to um, pay any attention to the, the cognitive ability or yeah. the, the, the backgrounds of your. Individual differences. Yeah. You know, to what extent can you extrapolate, say, from 20 undergraduates to yeah. the consumers that will buy the computer that you're going to design? That's true. Um, so we were looking at uh, maybe looking into individual differences in the future. Um, however, we made a decision based on previous work, especially from the MyStat guys, um, that a sample of 15 to 20 people is enough to capture some sort of idea at least of the general population that you're looking at right now. So I'm looking at, sorry I didn't mention this, I'm looking at uh, postgraduates. Um, it, well, I would be interested, you're right, I would be very interested in the future maybe to check with another group just to see if I'm getting the same results. Um, but I'm, I'm less interested in, in the type of people that are going to receive this, that's completely against human-computer interaction here. I'm more interested in seeing if there's sort of a, a general pattern that people are following. Does that make sense? I have two quick questions. One um, is about sort of the interface environment generally, because mm -hmm. we've all sort of had that experience where we've been trying to come up with ideas for something, and then you step away from the interface, and you're in the car or in the shower. The ideas come in. Well, That's what is that mechanism, and do you, are you able to test that in any way? That um, that has been tested in in a, I can't remember what papers they are, but they're basically the, the, the syndrome that the best ideas come when you're in the shower. Mm -hmm. um, I, I genuinely don't know how to mitigate that right now. I'm sort <laughs> of hoping... It yeah. <laughs> Harness it, exactly. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about this the other day. It's just, I mean, when you, when you get the question or you have some sort of a main problem, like how would you attract more women to study astrophysics, for example, um, when you're sitting down with a question, I would like to try to create as much of an environment as possible to try and get as many ideas out as possible. Future-wise, <laughs> because I'm human-computer interaction and ubiquitous computing, there's going to be computers everywhere. Future-wise, I, I do picture sort of in the next 50 years that there will be screens in your shower. Um, there will be 24-7 recording in your cars. If you have a great idea, you just shout it out. Um, but I think that's wishful thinking. <laughs> that's something for the future. It's, it's, it's sleep that makes a difference. It is, but a lot of it, yeah, it's, it goes to the back of your head. There's also a lot of people that have studied um, 
when you're trying to come up with ideas, especially like a brainstorming session, if you send people off to have some chocolate and think about something completely different, when they come back, they have a completely fresh mind and new ideas come out. Um, that, yeah. That's the converse of that, um, in terms of pressure. So if you give someone that open-ended choice to say, well, when you think you're done, you can move on, yeah. versus, well, actually, there's a minimum of 12 ideas in this category we know. So if they get to five and they're stuck, are they more likely to yeah. keep pushing and find something if they think there's, a, so there's an answer there? Or? I don't actually inform people how many categories there are, just because I don't want to stress them. Um, there, there are 50. Um, <laughs> and I think most people end up using about five. Um, there, is, there is evidence. Maybe I'm going off on a tangent right now. There's evidence actually that some people are, um, they prime their participants. So they, they get them to think about education. And then they ask them the question, um, how can we save the world? How can we heal the environment? Um, and, and that shows that people tend to think a lot closer within how to inform people and educate people. Whereas if you don't prime them, they just sort of pick from different categories, um, not as, as in depth in each category. Um, there was another part of that question, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's, no, it's fine. It's, it's, yeah, okay, it's good. So, at the back one? Yeah, um, so how, how would you go about delineating those thought categories? Because you said there are 50, and yeah. there must be 50 within some sort of framework. There is, yes. So there's um, a framework that was built by a guy called Deal um, in 1991. Um, I'm using that. Uh, basically, so the one, the study that I've been doing right now is based on quite a few other papers that have asked the same question, used the same category. So what he said is that each category, um, ideas can be split into two parts. So there's the method, or actually it's the goal and then the method. So for this particular question that I've been asking people, which is um, how can we, uh, what can the individual do to improve the environment or to save the world, um, they found that there were 10 goals, so uh, reduce air pollution, um, increase the use of uh, natural resource, that sort of thing. Um, and then methods, so methods would be something like consumption, production, or innovation. I classify those two together. Um, information, and then organization and action, which is getting the government involved or joining Greenpeace. Um, this is actually what I was mentioning on my last slide, which is we use those categories, reuse those categories basically because we wanted to see if we could produce the same results. And whilst we did with just my categorization of my data, um, when I compared it to my supervisor, I realized that something like um, use your car less could actually fit into lots of different goals. One method because it's consumption, but lots of different goals. So basically we don't quite think this is the, the most efficient way of categorizing these, this, these ideas that are coming out. Um, thinking of maybe changing that sometime in the, in the near future and coming up with a new method of categorizing these ideas. A little bit of a side project to what I'm doing, but yes. <laughs> yeah. And this is definitely a side thing, but I was thinking about the pen versus the computer and the fact that it's non-linear, um, plus the shower. So usually you have a good idea when you're not trying to have it, and if you're yeah. trying to solve it, you don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> So my point is, how do you access that information then? Because what usually happens is that you write in a little piece of paper in the yeah. corner or something, 
and you can never find it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I always thought that if I had a little tablet or something like that where I can write everything, yeah. then I would be able to find it. But there's still the problem that even though I remember I had an idea about this, I don't know how to search it, if that makes any sense. Because you would, you know, in the current situation, yeah. you still have to know some kind of a keyboard of that idea to be able to find it or somewhere to file that you know how to find it. So I was just wondering if there's any research on that aspect, which is, you know, how do you find your ideas yeah. and have scrolled away? Currently, not something I'm looking at. It, it's, a very, it's a very real world application of how to write down your ideas and, and basically retrieve them again. Um, so currently not something I'm looking at. In terms of having the tablet and having your ideas on there, um, I was hoping to have some sort of an application where you could store them. However, I've never really thought further than one question. So one question having lots of ideas thrown at it. Um, in terms of searching, probably wouldn't have time to do this in my PhD, but I'd be interested to find out in the future something like uh, what Evernote does, where you search for a keyword or something like that. That's probably the closest I could currently say to find your ideas again. <laughs> Okay, any final questions? So, uh, I had a couple, but maybe I'll say them because I'm aware we need to uh, keep the time. So, let's thank Christine one more time. So, the last item before the uh, coffee break is the flash presentations. So, this is going to be a bit, uh, a bit experimental. We'll see how this goes. Basically, what we have now are a selection of people who want to uh, talk about their posters. So these people, if I could get all the Flash presenters up at the front, please. And I'll explain the rules. <coughs> Yo, so, I'm sorry, yeah, only for the first session. There's a second uh, session of Flash poster presentations afterwards. So what I need you guys to do is line up in the order that you want to speak. There is an order. Talk amongst yourselves. Yeah, okay. Okay, and while I'm finding this, just to run through two minutes each. So I will... Oh yes, don't worry about that. Here we are, so, here we are. It's by letter of the alphabet for first name. So it goes Adrian, Chris, Kennelly, those who are proud. So, who's Adrian? All right, so should we have you on this side? Closely followed by Chris. So, two minutes each, right? so I'll be timing you, and there will be a noise when the two minutes is up. So in that two minutes, we'll be ticking Let's get them all up first.
So I'm sure that many of you will have seen this kind of event before, but just if anybody hasn't, the usual deal is that each presenter has a single slide, they have a very short period of time, in this case it's going to be two minutes, uh, so they have two minutes, 120 seconds, to convince as many people in the room as possible to come and look at their poster. No questions, when the two minutes is up, it's up. I would like everybody please to clap for a period of exactly five seconds. <laughs> Change over to the next slide, and then if you can exit, and uh, we'll see how closely we get to stick to time. So there should be a noise of some description uh, at the end of the two minutes. So if I hold the microphone next to my phone. Okay. So, we're going to start with the letter A, and your two minutes start now. Right, so, basically for my PhD, I've been working uh, with, uh, I've been developing a gas discharge laser in a coracle fiber. Now, this is a lot of buzzwords strings together, so I'm going to break it down to you. We'll start with, what is a gas discharge? So, that picture up there, or that one up there, is of a typical gas discharge. What it is, it's a tube of a gas, we only apply a high voltage it glows. We also have a bit of resistance, allows to control current and power for energy, etc. And so this technology has been around a very long time. Just look above you at their lights, there's an LCC. And they were also used in the development of the original lasers. So these require rigorously straight tubes, tubes to avoid any losses, which may be very bulky and in the modern day, bulky in fact. So what basically what I work is to is stick them in a hollow core fiber and this is flexible, allows us to coil it, and it can be less bulky now, which is good. It also has the added benefit of being longer, which gets more power. So, this nice picture here is of uh, such a discharge. You see the pale blue is of a helium and xenon glow in it, and there's two, there's two electric connections at the end. And so, this big nice circle here is of my fiber I'm using. It's a holocaust fiber, using based on anti resonant technology to guide light. It's 120 micron core, so about the size of your hair. As there, it's filled with helium and xenon and sticking 40,000 volts onto it, it's a lot up. So we've got light, we want to make carry to make a laser, we need mirrors for this. And so first step we put one mirror at one end, so we bang a mirror on that end, and so that creates what we call a double pass. So the graph over there shows the difference between a single pass, which is with no mirror, which is detected at one end, and a double pass with mirror at one end. And so we see light goes up in the pass, which just means we have gain, which is good, and we can go and build a laser. And so on Friday, I managed to complete my cavity, which we think we have a laser, and not yet tested though, unfortunately. And it's a nice birthday present. Thank you. Okay, you went out well. Okay, Chris, go. Uh, hi, my name's Chris. Uh, I'm from the chemistry department. Uh, I'm working on an organic catalytic synthesis of sulfoxamines. Um, so if you look on the far left, the reason that sulfoxamines are interesting is because they're biologically active, and that's why AstraZeneca are They're interested in them because they want to put them in drugs. There's currently a uh, drug with a sulfoxamine core, um, which is in phase three clinical trials, or they're going to fight back in, but that's fine. Um, so, so what is the problem? They've been made before. Uh, and currently, the best way to make them is uh, with rhodium catalysis. So you can see the second, block, second box there. Rhodium catalysis is, is a bit bad for drug development. Well, not rhodium, in fact. Uh, metal catalysis has disadvantages uh, for, for drug development. Uh, the main two are cost uh, and putting uh, uh, reactive metals in in drug development, so we'll eventually end up with people, um, which is something to be avoided if possible. Uh, so what is our solution? Uh, we, we've decided to uh, use a catalyst called uh, Ripe, 
which is vitamin B2, is what makes your cornflake yellow, hence that picture. Um, but we're actually using a synthetic mimic of riboflavin, which is, which is, you can see a crystal structure there, that's what it literally looks like in space. Um, riboflavin is, has some really good uh, precedents in the literature for oxygen transfer um, to sulfides, uh, so that will give you a sulfoxide. Um, and it's also, we're also trying to use it um, ultimately for nitrogen transfer, which it, there's less literature, less literature precedent for. Uh, so what have I done? Um, I've used the I've used the flavin um, to uh, transform a sulfide to a sulfoxide uh, using hydroxylamine, uh, which is the first time that's been done for sulfoxide formation. Uh, I've got 13 samples. 13 examples. I've got some uh, mechanisms which are interesting, uh, and then further work uh, continued uh, use of ammonium carbonate, which I've just had a really good result with uh, for nitrogen transfer. Okay, fantastic penguin. Thank you, Chris. Okay, so Emily, your time starts now. Okay, so bacteria live inside all of us. In fact, there are as many microbial cells in our bodies as there are human cells. And in most cases, these are what's been harmed. But if our immune systems become compromised through illness or injury, some species in our bodies can become, um, can become a cause of infectious disease by taking advantage of our lowered immune defenses. So now let's take MRSA as an example. Um, Let's look at MRSA as an example. Um, so 20 to 30% of us will carry the cause of agent of MRSA in our bodies, and in most cases it won't cause them. In most cases it won't cause them harm. Um, but this bacteria is capable of causing anything from mild skin infections through to serious and potentially fatal infections in the blood. So why is it that this, this normally harmless bacteria can cause such a wide variety of infections? How does it do this, and in what do you think it can do? Work from my lab group um, focuses on. Oh, <laughs> work from my lab group has shown that there is a significant amount of variation in the ability of MRSA isolates to actively damage human cells through the production of toxic proteins and toxins. And it's this variation in toxicity that's been the focus of my work so far. So I've been studying genetically different MRSA isolates to look at the variation in toxicity to human cells. And it's led to the identification of specific genes which are associated with toxicity in MRSA. My most recent work, which is illustrated on the poster, is to characterise the differences between a particular low toxic um, mutant of MRSA and compare the differences to a highly toxic wild type strain. The short term benefits of this work will be in development of novel drug targets, which can be important in the treatment of MRSA infections, but the real benefits of this work will be in the long term, helping to fill in the gaps in current knowledge regarding the genetic basis for bacterial toxicity and ultimately leading to better diagnosis as well as treatment of disease. With the loom of crisis and drug resistance, research such as this is going to become increasingly important in finding an alternative defense in the fight against infectious disease. Okay, thank you, Emily. So next up, it's Josie, and your time starts now. Hi, I'm Josie. Um, I'm going to be, uh, well, my poster is on basically bird sex and genes. Um, I'm testing a hypothesis that if you're polygamous, like a bit of a Charlie Sheen and like to get around, um, you've got a better chance of getting laid if you go to different places. Whereas if you're monogamous, do you stay in the same place um, rather than mixing your genes around? 
Um, so we're testing, it's a bit of a controversial hypothesis because people usually think that um, polygamy, so high sexual selection, leads to high speciation, high diversification. Um, and I tested this using two precursors to speciation. One of them is genetic differentiation. We use microsatellites, which are um, similar to what Alex spoke about this morning, SSRs, and um, the number of subspecies in the species. Three different analyses uh, confirmed our hypothesis. So this is using Bayesian structure. Monogamy has lots more structure. Um, so like in Alex's talk, this is genetically differentiated populations, whereas polygamy, they all look the same. Um, so that was nice. Isolation by distance. As you increase geographic distance from a partner, do you also increase your genetic distance? So you get more different as you move more away from them. And we found that in monogamous birds, you get that. Great. In, monogamous, in polygamous birds, you don't. You all look the same. In subspecies richness, in shorebirds, which is what, where we were testing all of these hypotheses on, we also found confirmation of our uh, prediction, which was that monogamous shorebirds have a greater number of subspecies compared to polygamous shorebirds. Um, I tested um, a second hypothesis concerning migration, um, and if you'd like to hear about that one, then uh, come to my poster. Okay. Okay, so next up is Ralph, and your time starts now. Um, there's a new kid on the block in the field of um, solar cells. Um, his name is Perovskites. You might have heard it before. You can see the structure here on the right, um, right top hand side. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, it's a great material. Um, you can see on the on the top. Um, <laughs> Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, welcome to the second half of today's um, session. Uh, my name is Lorenzo Caggiano. I'm a lecturer and director of postgraduate studies in the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology. And I have the pleasure of chairing the second half. If you missed the first half, uh, it's very much the same format. So we'll have three very diverse talks from three different departments, uh, from maths, uh, pharmacy and pharmacology and chemistry. And then to round it off, we'll have a similar uh, six, uh, two-minute quick-fire presentations at the end. Um, but to kick us off and get us started, I'd like to invite Peter. So Peter is from the Department of Mathematics. We'll talk about the spread of information in an inhomogeneous population. Yes. So Peter. Let me just pop that off you. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so as mentioned, I'll talk about spread of information in a population. Of course, you'll see this being a math stock, my definition of population is rather loose. Uh, but to begin with, I'll present to you a slightly simpler model, which is a bit more understood. And hopefully that model, so the homogeneous case, will help you understand how the stuff works and then also understand where the problems in the inhomogeneous case come from. So let's start with that. Uh, imagine you have a large grid, uh, technically infinite, and you just put a lot of particles on it. You spread them out nicely, but they could be clumped up together in some parts, uh, maybe slightly wider apart than others, but overall nicely spread out. And each of these particles moves around independently. 
So that means that they're not aware of what's going around them. And they move in the following matter, uh, manner. So first of all, they wait a random amount of time, after which they pick any of the neighboring sites equally likely and jump to them. And then they repeat the process. And I should point out that if a particle wants to jump onto a site that's already occupied, that's fine. In fact, it's something we want. So particles can sort of cohabit locations. Next, let's make one of the particles special. I like the color red, so let's make them red. This particle is going to be the carrier with information. Okay? So this particle still behaves exactly like all of the others, still jumps around, still independently, all of that. However, whenever this particle, the carrier, meets another particle, it transfers its information onto it. It doesn't forget it itself, so now both are carriers. Uh, and maybe let's just try illustrating that. So here we have three particles about to move. Okay, they moved. And now just to speed it up, let's have the red particle eventually jump onto the blue one there. Okay, whoops. Blue one realizes something's about to happen. Red one jumps on top and changes them into a carrier itself. Now, if the particles represent the population, then maybe it's not too big of a stretch to sort of interpret this as a spread of disease or maybe a rumor, uh, if you want to be slightly less morbid. Uh, so as mentioned, this model is relatively well understood. And there's a paper from 2005 by the authors Harry Keston and Vlada Sidorovicius, uh, in which they show three very nice results about this. So they've shown that the infection, or the rumor if you prefer, spreads linearly in time with very high probability, and in fact that probability increases as time passes. Next, they've shown that gaps within this infected region are increasingly unlikely. And these gaps could either come from maybe the disease sort of just spreading around a certain part and just ignoring it, or maybe a chunk of uninfected or uninformed uh, people somehow sneaking in. Both are possible, but both become increasingly unlikely. And this picture sort of represents the third thing they, they've shown, which is that this infection actually spreads roughly in a circle. And again, as time goes on, this becomes more and more likely. So of course, the circles become bigger, but uh, this uh, is increasingly likely. Now, the way the authors proved this was by observing something rather simple, in fact. So they figured out that if you look at an infected particle, you can backtrack and trace an ancestry of how the disease sort of jumped particle to particle until the very particle you're looking at. And they realized that if you track ancestries like this, you can actually make them directed. So you can construct them in such a way that they have a tendency to go wherever you want them to go. And that kind of comes from a very simple thing, which is that whenever two or more particles cohabit a location, the probability of at least one of them going in the correct direction, the one we want, is more than a half. So if one of the particles infected, then of course all of the particles in that specific location are infected as well, so we have this property. So I guess the main, the main issue, of course, then is showing that for each ancestry you pick, that happens often enough. That's sort of where the, the issues were. Now, if we kind of understand all of this, Let's, on, let's move on to my work, so inhomogeneous environment. Start again with the same setup as before. So we again have a grid, we again have particles, they move independently, one is special. But now we add weights on top of the edges. So now all of the edges are not uh, equivalent any longer. They have weights, and these weights are all positive, so none of them can be zero, but they can be arbitrarily large. 
And now, although the particles still move independently, they no longer jump in each direction with equal probability. Instead, they jump proportionally to the weight of the edge. So the heavier edges are more likely to be followed up along. So you think that with such a tiny change, not much changes. But in fact, as usual, that's not the case. In fact, the previous approach no longer works. And there's two very obvious reasons why that's the case. One is ancestors can still be tracked. I mean, there was nothing preventing that. But they cannot be directed any longer. And you can e easily visualize one reason for that. Imagine an ancestry sort of spreading along the graph, happily sort of oblivious of what's going on around, around it. Uh, and of course, because of the weights, it's more likely than not to be following along heavy edges. Now, these heavy edges could lead it into a dead end, where all of the other edges surrounding it are going to be very small. The edges along which they came are very large. So the ancestry is then much more likely to go back instead of proceeding wherever we want it to go. So they're definitely not going to be directed anymore. The other thing that happens is clustering. And again, maybe just as a side note, this is where the uh, inhomogeneous population part comes from. So particles will cluster. That's built into the model. When you have edges with weights, this is something that naturally happens. So we want this. Problem is, such clustering could actually prevent the disease or the rumor from spreading to other clusters. So these are two very obvious reasons why the previous approach definitely doesn't work any longer. So the way I worked around this was to look at the problem from a macro perspective. And what I mean by that is, so again, large grid, and now chop it up into very large blocks. So each square here is a block of the, of the grid. And try to figure out what the probability of the information crossing it is. And hopefully it's large enough. Now in this picture, we can visualize this. So we have the blocks. The white ones are the ones where the probability, oh, sorry, where the information didn't cross. The blue ones are the ones where it did. Okay? Now, population theory tells us that if the probability of the crossing is large enough, there should be a way to go from top to bottom, just following the blue ones without jumping over white uh, blocks. And graphically, it would be something like this. Uh, this is the thing I'm currently sort of finalizing in my work. But using all of this, we can again show that the infection does spread linearly in time, just like before. However, we probably can't recover a shape theorem. So we can't show that it spreads like a circle any longer. And that's kind of obvious why, since the weights on, on the graph will influence the behavior locally. So if you imagine just a balloon uh, uh, expanding, you'll have parts of the graph tugging at it inwards, other parts pushing outwards, some will make it spiral, so it completely <coughs> distorts it. A couple of comments on the mathematics. So I mentioned that percolation theory gives us this, uh, but I had to use multi-scale percolation simply because Normally, in percolation theory, you will have independence between the blocks. So what happens in one block is, block is completely independent of the other blocks. Here, of course, that's not the case, since just neighboring blocks could have particles sort of moving across. So what happens in one block would definitely affect the other block. And within each block, we rely on mixing of particles to occur, which is currently the main result I've shown. Uh, and it's pretty much finalized. Now, finally, the next steps. Uh, I would like to generalize this result to graphs where edges can be missing, or if you prefer, where weights can be set to zero. 
Uh, and it actually turns out, I think, just from looking at this problem over the last week, that this shouldn't be too difficult. So hopefully, we can actually generalize this result to a much larger class of graphs. Uh, and perhaps more importantly, from the perspective of our supervisor, I would like to formalize this framework to create a standardized approach that can, can, that can be used on similar problems, where we have, again, blocks uh, with dependence between them and use the multi-scale percolation argument that I slightly illustrated earlier to sort of make it work on perhaps not particles transferring information, but maybe conductance networks where particles have current going between them if they're on neighboring sites, stuff like that. Uh, and that actually concludes what I wanted to tell you. So thank you for listening. Excellent. Thanks very much, Peace, for getting off this second session to a great start. Questions? So I can see in the case of disease, um, you'd like it not to spread. But if you were, for example, a marketing manager and you wanted the rumor of your product to spread efficiently, mm -hmm. Um, if you don't a priori know the, the weights or the boundaries mm -hmm. that prevent something from spreading, is there a way to invert the problem and see how something is not spreading to then figure out what's blocking it and then help it spread? So the assumptions we have are not a specific set of weights. We, we more or less just assume that the weights behave in a certain manner, but they're still random. So you will still have clumps and everything, but then once you have a realization, you know the property. So those are your starting assumptions. And not wanting to spread or wanting to spread are just two faces of the same coin. So uh, basically, you get sort of a phase effect where up to a certain level of weight behavior, it's not going to spread after which it will. So you just go one way or the other. And can you tell where that's going to happen before it happens and predict it and then affect well, it in any way? It should be possible for a given sort of set of parameters to be able to tell from this point on where yes, beneath that, no. But uh, at this stage, we're mainly trying to just show existence and, and uniqueness and stuff like that, math stuff. Thanks. Yeah, in, in the context of your disease model, mm -hmm. can you explain to me what the boundaries might represent in real life? So, I mean, would they be patients that pre-immune? Would they be geographical boundaries? Would they be well, interventions that have been put in place in certain locations? When you say boundaries... Or your edges. I'm trying to understand in terms... Ah, the edges of the ground. Yeah. So, in the unweighted case, they're literally streets, if you prefer, or maybe corridors. Now, with the weighted case, you could sort of imagine them being either... So, if you go to a more macroscopic level, they could be, for example, uh, flight paths. And the heavier edges would imply more flights going between two airports. Smaller edges would perhaps indicate that airport is very unpopular, so that connection is very unlikely. Or it could be traffic. Again, heavier, weight, uh, heavier weights would imply much more traffic going along a certain route versus lighter. Okay, thank you. Rather simple question, really. You presented a two-dimensional problem. Yes. But the, many of the applications are going to be three-dimensional. In fact, they're going to be D-dimensional. So it's just in terms of presenting it two-dimensional is the okay. easiest. So I'm just wondering how the mathematical scale of adding dimensions. It doesn't really change anything. If anything, it simplifies it. So right now, for the case of D equal 1 and 2, so 
one dimension, two dimensions, and I should mention that there's always an extra time dimension that I didn't sort of point out. So when you have dimension one, that means dimension one plus time, so it's a two-dimensional problem. That one has a separate set of results. Then dimension two plus time, so 3D has a second set, a set of results, and anything above that falls into its own category. So actually adding dimensions from a mathematical, uh, mathematical perspective makes it easier. Stuff actually behaves nicer. And that's usually the case with percolation theory. So two-dimensional uh, issues, problems, tend to sort of have its own set of solutions, its own set of approaches, because they are just special. And everything else is sort of done separately. And usually in, a, in an easier manner. I know it's counterintuitive, but it's maths. I, I had the same question, just following on from that. So you mentioned this linear relationship. Mm -hmm. There would still be a linear relationship in yes. 3D. Uh, so linear in that case means that if you double the amount of time you wait, yeah. the distance traveled is going to double as well. Okay. So that doesn't matter in how many dimensions you're doing it, okay. because I would imagine, yeah, just basic physics or, or maths everyone does for A-levels. When you calculate distance, it doesn't really depend on, on dimension. It's just a different formula, by, but distance itself is still defined just fine. So that's what I meant when I said linear. Okay. There's a question in the back. Um, yeah, one, it, it reminds me a bit of a crime series I've seen called Numbers, where um, a, a disease was spreading and then a mathematician calculated its origin um, from, from the mm -hmm. pattern of the, of the spread of the disease. I was wondering if you can also go back in time with your model and mm -hmm. look at the first carrier or the first right particle in your system. Um, well, I mean, this, this is a purely theoretical model. So its, its goal is not to figure out how it started. Its goal is to figure out how it will sort of evolve and mainly get not so much qualitative, uh, sorry, but quantitative answers, but more qualitative. Will it spread? Will it spread fast? Uh, as it's set up right now, I don't think you would be able to, to tell much from actually looking at how, how it evolved and, and then trying to work it backwards. Uh, but that could be the next stage after these results sort of give us uniqueness and existence and everything, then we might actually try looking at implementing it and see seeing if, if it leads somewhere. Thank you. Last question, Sergei. Uh, it, it looks like there is some kind of um, obvious that after some time you have percolation. Mm -hmm. But what kind of new information do you expect to get from this kind of modeling? Well, uh, so to be honest, the goal here was actually much more about that formalized framework I mentioned at the very end. And this spread of disease or a rumor is actually just one application to, to sort of sell the model. Uh, but the key problem here is that, like I mentioned, you don't have independence between the blocks. And in fact, because we're working in continuous time, you don't even have local dependence and uh, uh, independence from afar. Here, everything, all the blocks, because one of the dimension is time, all of the blocks are weakly dependent on one another. So it becomes tricky to actually have any, any sort of percolation result, especially when, when dealing with particles then. Uh, since each block, the existence or the, the outcome of the event depends on, on technically all of the particles in the system, and there's infinitely many of them from infinitely far potentially. So that's the main issue. Does that answer your question? Okay, would you like to join me in thanking Pete for a great opening talk?
Next up, I'd like to invite Eileen. Eileen's going to talk about the YAP signaling in the context of cancer from the Department of Pharmacy and Pharmacology. Please, Eileen. Good afternoon. My name is Xie Bai Lu. It's my honor to be here to present my PhD project, the YAP signaling in the context of cancer. The aim of my project is to understand why a protein called yet associated protein can promote cell growth in solid cancers but causes cell death in hematological cancer. Here is the 3D graphic model of a human cell. You can see the brown cell membrane and the organelles such as mitochondria scatter in the cytoplasm and the nucleus at the center of the cell. The yet protein is like this tiny little dot distributed in the cytoplasm. It's a little wonder that such a tiny dot can decide the cell fate, to be or not to be. Actually, the, cell pro the yeah, protein is part of a complex cell signaling network full of protein-protein interaction from the cell membrane to the nucleus. Our knowledge of cell signaling grows every now and then, like the extension of London Underground. <coughs> Imagine the YAP signaling. It's like the journey of YAP protein in the Victoria station in cytoplasm to the Heathrow airport in the nucleus. The Ettentown hemisphere Earth cores is like the entrance to the nucleus. If YAP protein changed to the green line, which is the district light, it won't take it into the nucleus. The digital light is like the multiplication of YAP protein with phosphorylation, resulting in the YAP remain in the cytoplasm. If YAP changed to blue line, which is the Piccadilly line, it will take it into the nucleus. And then YAP has to decide which terminal it will go to to get on the right airplane. Imagine that the airplane called TED at Terminal 3. If YAP jumps to TED airplane, it would, um, it's actually is the YAP protein binds to the TED protein in reality. It will lead to cell growth. Imagine there's another airplane called P73 at Terminal 4. If YAP jumps on the P73, the final destination will be death. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, like, how, I'm curious at the decision that YAP made in different cell types. But understanding the selective binding of the protein to TED and P73, I hope to come up with some suggestion to inhibit cell growth in solid cancer. If there's something wrong with the cell signaling, such as mutation in some protein, the cell can grow uncontrollably and become cancer cells, like this, oh, sorry, like this malignant cells grow on top of one another and they can form new blood vessels that join the main blood vessels. As a result, the cancer cells can sneak into the bloodstream to spread throughout the body. Numerous strategies have been developed or being developed based on the cell signaling to target different stages of cancer progression. Um, just now we heard a fascinating talk from Zicheng about the material in two-dimensional. Now I'm going to talk about the two-dimensional and three-dimensional in the cell level. 
So in vitro cell culture, which is growing cancer cells that have been modified to survive outside the cancer patient, allow us to understand the tumor biology, cell signaling, and screen large amounts of anti-cancer drugs easily. In a conventional way of cell culture, the cells are grown as a single layer. Um, uh, however, in most cases in solid cancers, the cells are grown as a multi-layers in three-dimensional. The 3D culture is considered to mimic the tumor architecture better than 2D culture. And compared to animal model of human cancer, 3D culture of human cancer cells more resembles some situation in cancer patients. In the beginning of my project, I practiced 2D and 3D culture. The bottom left is the pancreatic cancer cell lines in 2D culture. Um, it's a microscopy image of the pancreatic cancer cell line. And the bottom right is the same pancreatic cancer cell lines as the left. You can see the cells are round and grow on top of one another, unlike the flat and spread cells sit side by side with each other. And let me zoom out a bit and show you a movie of how the 3D culture, oh, sorry. Um, sorry. Uh, it's fine. Yeah. Just let me show you the movie of how the 3D culture grow, grow bigger and bigger in 10 days. So, so with the 3D culture at my disposal, I've started to explore the protein expression and localization and cell growth and death after the regulation of their signaling with small molecules. Today, I just want to share some of the results of the subcellular localization of their protein in two human pancreatic cancer cells in 2D and 3D culture. These are confocal fluorescence image where the blue is a specific dye that binds to the nucleus and the red are specific dye that bind to the yak protein. And you can see here in these cells, Oh, it's clear. This is not that clear. The cells, I want you to say is that the red and the blue mixed with each other resulted in the color violet. I violet. And this means the yelp and the nucleus were in the same place, suggesting that the yelp protein mainly localized in the nucleus in 2D. However, in 3D culture, you can see the red and the blue were separated and the red often form a circle around the blue. This suggested that the yak protein mainly localized in the cytoplasm outside the nucleus. This image is some take-home message. This shows the difference in the yak cellular localization in 2D and 3D culture. There were more cells with nuclear accumulation of yak protein in 2D culture, whereas there were more cells with cytoplasmic retention of yak protein. Then it comes to another question. If in 3D culture, the yak protein remains in the cytoplasm, then how can it bind to its head and promote cell growth in solid cancers? Well, uh, actually I think one of the possibilities the techniques are used to collect the 3D culture. And another possibility that my lead supervisor, Randy, and I talk about is maybe this model cannot fully represent the cancer tissue inside cancer patients. So in the future, 
I hope the 3D model, the 3D culture of the pancreatic cancer cells can be improved and used to study a microenvironment involving more cell types. In human tumor microenvironment, the cancer cells can interact with immune cells such as the, the T cells, uh, T cells, macrophage, and monocytes, and phagoblast cells and the extracellular matrix contributing to the tumor heterogeneity, drug resistance, and tumor immune evasion. There are a lot more we need to know about cancer so that we can come up with better therapeutic weapons to control cancer growth. At last, I would like to thank my supervisors, Randy, Steve, Makoto, and Amanda, and my group members, Emma, Carlos, Anna, Fro, Molly, Julia, Alistair, and Magdalena. And Special thanks to Tiago, Adrian, and Kim that have taught me the techniques to acquire those fluorescent images. And I'm grateful for a long list of people that have given me a hand since I came to UK. And the Graduate School Scholarship that funds my tuition fee. And thanks for your attention. Excellent. Well done. Questions? <clears throat> Have you um, actually been able to look at any intact pancreatic cancer tissue oh. to actually look and see well, where is the app localising within the tumour? Yeah, yeah, for my project I haven't, but I've searched some literature, some articles. Uh, they are doing some it's HE staining, but it's not immunohistochemistry, so it's a bit different from the immunofluorescence, I think. In the, so in that articles, they use some ratio to differentiate the cytoplasmic yap and nuclear yap. So in one literature, they said it's supposed to be more, uh, it, if the result suggested there's more nuclear yap in the real, um, you know, the human tissue, the pancreatic cancer patient's tissue in that uh, one part, that paper. And I plan to just try to get some pancreatic cancer cell tissue I look to look at myself. So right now, I just have some papers to read. I haven't done it myself. Okay. Now following on from that, while people are thinking of questions, um, why PANC1 cells? Are you looking to uh, different cells? I know PANC1 very capricious. Sometimes they, uh, they're difficult to handle. What's your experience? Uh, the reason is I just given the cell at the beginning, so I didn't really think about this. This why the penguin cell first. So I guess uh, in my lab, actually, some people have done the other pancreatic cancer cell lines, uh, but I haven't looked at the yeah, expression in Pank one and KPank two. And at that time, I was carrying on her project, so I think that's the reason I was given. <laughs> I chose Pank one cell line. Okay. It looks like uh, there is quite obvious difference between 3D and two-dimensional case. In 3D, you have uh, each cell has more neighbors. Then it's not surprising that uh, spread is uh, weaker. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the that's reason. In 3D culture, the cell cell contact is more cell cell contact 3D culture. In 2D culture, actually, um, that image is uh, it's not. That clear that uh, because I haven't stained the cell membrane. If I could have the result of the cell membrane, because actually these cells are also uh, in as close cell contact with each other. They're just more spread out. 
and making them like that and they make them look the size is bigger than the 2D than the 3D culture. So actually this cell, cell density is also quite high in here. So so that's the interesting part is we, we, we don't know that what's like involved in this deoplocalization. We need to find a real reason, real that this is the reason why it happened like that. The result you showed us really about your Earl's Court question to go to Heathrow or not. Uh -huh. um, but in Heathrow, you have two destinations with yeah. the, the test protein and the P73. Yeah. Are you looking at those interactions at all? Yeah, in the future, I will definitely look at that. It's about the uh, uh, using some cell fractionation and immunoprecipitation. That, so that technique can help us to study the protein interaction with each other. That's my future work. Yes. So you assume that this uh, picture on the right hand side is the unphosphorylated or the phosphorylated version of the other? Uh, uh, I expect, I think it's highly possible it's a phosphorylated, yeah. Because the phosphorylation, yeah, can, can remain in the cytoplasm. So yeah. do you have could you use an antibody, like a phosphorylated yeah, yeah, antibody? Yeah, that's, that's, that's possible, because we have commercially available. And it's different phosphorylation sites of yak protein. And there's another interesting part is, this seems in hematological cancer and solid cancers, the results are, uh, the papers I've read, they use different antibodies to detect the different phosphorylated yak. And I even read in some papers that there's phosphorylated yak inside the nucleus. So this is just some conflicting results. So I guess I have to ver verify it myself in my own culture. Because they use, often use different cell lines and different culture systems. So I guess I have to test it in my own cell system. Thanks. When you look at the 3D model, when you optically section the organoid or whatever you wish to call it, is that pattern of distribution throughout or do you have to hunt through? Do you have to actually find a plane where you see that distribution? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, at that time, yeah, in the beginning, it's really difficult for me to find spheroids, uh, the, the spheroids, I call it, the 3D culture. But then I just collect like 50 or 50 spheroids, the 3D culture thing in one tube. So when, when I slice them, I can get quite a lot of this kind of sections uh, on the wax slice, on the wax and then in the slice. So every, like from the smallest one to the largest one, that's what I, uh, what I saw here. Just, it's almost the same, like this. this okay. the red, like on a circle around so the whether it's a but peripheral, Whether it's peripheral within the spheroid or towards the core yeah, of the yeah, spheroid, yeah. you see the same pattern of distribution, the same staining pattern? Yeah, yeah, that's what I found so far in K-Pan 2. Actually, Pan 1, I need to still improve it because you can see the the 3D structure is kind of destroyed by the way I use the wax to embed it, the spherical 3D culture. So these techniques I really need to improve in the future. Thanks for reporting that. Thank you. Okay, would you like to join me in thanking Harry? Jamie's up next.
So Jamie's from the Department of Chemistry, and we'll be talking about the activating carbon-hydrogen bonds of bioactive chemical structures. Jamie, door's yours. Hello. Um, welcome to the chemistry part of the Faculty of Science Graduate Research Afternoon. My name is Jamie Leach, and I'll be talking to you today about the research I carried out in the first year of my PhD under the supervision of Chris Frost in partnership with Syngenta, the agrochemical company. As um, Lorenzo said, my title is entitled The Activation of Carbon-Hydrogen Bonds of Bioactive Chemical Structures. What I carry out generally forms a cyclic process, starting with target identification, test motif synthesis, reaction methodology development, library creation, biological testing, and then begin again. Starting off with biological targets. At the start of my PhD, I identified four biological targets that I wanted to make analogues of, basically. Firstly, we have linezolid, which is an antibiotic, which is used in, as a last line of defense treatment for MRSA. Rivaraxaban, which is an anticoagulant used in AF treatment. Nilutamide, an antiandrogen used in prostate cancer treatment and also in gender reassignment therapy. And icodyne, which is a fungicide used in crop protection. What might not necessarily be immediately clear is that these two, uh, these four compounds all come from, hail from two uh, families of chemical structures. The ones in the top come from the oxazolidinone family, which is based on this little section here. And the two on the bottom come from the hydantoin family, which is based on these two here. And the important thing is that you have this, this group and this group next to an aromatic group there. And this is what we can use CH activation to do to make derivatives thereof. This then moves into test motif synthesis. A lot of biologically active compounds are incredibly complex and containing a large variety of functional groups, and large, uh, including um, very complex stereochemistry as well. Therefore, it is often paramount to create small molecule mimics that will mimic the bioactive co uh, the core section of these molecules, which would then enable you to create derivatives thereof. And these small molecule mimics must be available on gram scale for testing and quickly because you don't want to faff about. This is available for both the oxazolidin and the hydantamid structures. So um, I took basically the core out of both of these and as you can see here and here, and these are available in one step for the oxazolidin on the left and three steps uh, for the hydantamid on the right and all can be made in two days. CH activation is quite a fiddly piece of transition metal catalysis. I won't go too much into detail because people will bore you to death on it for many, many afternoons. But here I'll tell you what you need to know. Basically, classic, classically, CH bonds are pretty inert. However, using carefully, carefully designed uh, metal systems and directing groups such as this allow you to make them into reactive functional groups. Here, the oxygen or nitrogen in many other cases there are loads of different directing groups can coordinate a metal, a transition metal, in this case is ruthenium, which is the work that I've carried out. This then facilitates CH insertion. As the ruthenium could coordinate something else, it can coordinate something else in the reaction mixture. This can coordinate it and then the metal center clips them together. And what you've created here is a biologically relevant analog based on the biologically re relevant mimic that you started with. The same case is there for the hydantamins as well. It exact, works exactly the same, it's just a slightly different directing group, which is slightly more complex. This then moves into the proper meat of my work, which is the reaction methodology development and library creation. This is using, this is trawling the literature, finding different reactions, testing reactions, 
optimizing conditions to get you a wide scope and efficient transformation of your compounds into new interesting compounds to some people. I won't labor you with the details. However, I managed to develop conditions that allow easy, uh, efficient CH coupling of a aromatic with an alkene coupling partner. Well, an alkene coupling partner to create these two derivative structures here, the top and the bottom, in good yields. And yes, what I must, uh, what must be noted is that these reaction conditions are both very similar. Uh, this is quite an attractive feature for us in terms of the only difference between this is a slightly higher loading of ruthenium and a slight drop in temperature there versus there. This means that you don't have to drop and change reaction conditions. If you suddenly change a slight different tiny little bit on the thing right at the top, you have to change your entire thing completely, go back to the drawing board and start again. Also notable is that it's carried out in the green solvent methyl THF, which is renewably sourced from corn biomass and it is carried out under air, which is actually quite uncommon for uh, catalytic chemistry, so therefore no specialists in the atmospheres are required. This then moves on to library creation, which is a very long, arduous process. However, it allows you to create large uh, variety of compounds with varying different structures. From, uh, I did this for both the Oxazolina and the Hydantoin libraries. I didn't do that. Okay. And all this does is by ve oh god, this wrong button again. <laughs> Bun buttons are close together. Um, all I've done here is vary the top ring on both of them and the bottom ring with things that have different electronic values, uh, whether electron donating, electron withdrawing, different steric values, large, small, tiny, varying, varying things around the ring, and allow you to create two massive libraries. There's 29 of these and 23 of those, and then that allows you to move forward to the next stage, which is testing. I must say that this also includes uh, the active, direct, active, direct functionalization of nilutamide, which is the anti-androgen that I talked about earlier, which is quite possibly the simplest of the examples that I showed you earlier. And however, so that means that we're not only creating analogs of biologically relevant systems that we're creating mimics of, we're actually di making direct analogs of the drugs themselves. This then goes towards biological testing. This is where I send things over to Syngenta. They test my uh, all my compounds for herbicidal, uh, insecticidal, and fungicidal activity through high-throughput screening. I'm not too involved with that sort of side of things, however, um, uh, so yes. Uh, I must say, I must stress that Syngenta are more interested in the concepts behind being able to derivate these structures and the methodology going in between those rather than the structures themselves. They're not using me as a discovery chemist who is sort of branched out on the side. I'm more interested in the methodology behind everything else. This then only leads to beginning the cycle again, and that's what I did. But I won't bore you to any more of that today. I will just summarize that I have had oxazolidinone and hydantoin structures derivatized by CH activation. There's been new libraries of biologically relevant scaffolds created. Libraries have now been tested in uh, greenhouses for agrochemical activity. And my future work will generally include investigation of new biological active scaffolds. Uh, this includes just finding a new drug, finding a new agrochemical, finding the center, using a new directing group for similar reactions to create a new library itself, and exploring the sites of CX activation. All of the examples that I've shown you before have uh, had functionalization in this bond here. 
So this carbon-hydrogen bond there, allowing derivation there. However, there are methods that are, do permit the functionalization meta and para, although those are more scarce, and I would like to explore them as well. That really leads me to thank, um, first and foremost, Professor Chris Frost for allowing me to do the research in his group and his guidance. The rest of the Frost group, uh, University of Bath and Syngenta for funding, and US Bernard from Syngenta, and other people for collaborations I didn't talk about today. And there's a group of happy families. <laughs> and that's it. Thank you for your questions. Excellent. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, I've got loads of questions, but I'll open it up. Could I ask about your investigation of new scaffolds? Where do you begin? It would seem like a needle in a haystack. Um, as it's um, the general thing that we found is the oxazolid known group we've had interest in for about five years now or so, which we basically just found an accidental way of making them, and uh, then that then led to uh, that sort of stuff, and that's where that birth from. But this generally comes from you've spot an interesting new thing in the literature, just going around and someone, some random person's made it, and as usual with chemistry journals, there is a random bit of methodology applied to a bit of biology, and therefore you need an application. And then you find that bit of biology, <laughs> and then you use it, and you see what happens. And I've tried a lot, and these are only the success stories. So yeah, that's about it. It's just simple need in a haystack, and if all else fails, going to the big tables of top drug sales and seeing what's there. Yes? So, so your library creation. Uh, is there rationale for the functional groups that you're putting in? Um, generally, the rationale behind everything is wanting to explore the extremes of everything. Uh, the, extre like, the chemical extremes of going from very, like, incredibly electron, where is a good example, a very incredibly electron-rich aromatic okay. with okay. lots of methyls, and then, where's my CO3? And then things, there's, there's a lot buried in here, uh, which are basically how the electronics of the system of the aromatic group affect functionalization that can take place. And what you want to show is that it is permitting of lots of things, of lots of different characters, lots of different characterization of a molecule. And because quite often, the stuff that we do is looking towards people being able to use late stage, the late stage modification of drug or similar drug-like compounds, and at that point, you want it to be able to be um, amenable to most things possible, because quite a lot of the time, you'll find that you'll develop a reaction that works perfectly on your one thing. You put anything else anywhere, and it just shuts down. And then at some point, it might need to be bioavailable. Yes, yes. Uh, yes um, this, uh, a large majority of the library creation is filling a quota. And the... the uh, Meta-para also yes. localize that. Is there, is, what's, the, what's the difference between those positions functionally? Um, function, functionally, what, as in for these round here, for example, uh, generally the... Uh, and your new, your next challenge. <laughs> yeah. um, with these ones here that already, that already uh, are in place, mm -hmm. they, they have a different effect electronically depending on what place they are around the ring. They all affect the different, uh, the different acidity of this bond here. And um, they also, also when you get down to meta substituents, obviously you get an argument between whether it goes there or there, and you get, um, and then that's when sterics comes into a vault where like physical crowding of chemical space and you just can't fit in there, and um, then that, and then the ones of getting further into meta and para, those are completely random and novel methods of getting there. They're not similar methods. Okay. 
mentioned stereochemistry at the beginning. They all. Um, these ones here are basically, unfortunately, um, both oxazolinones and hydantoins are derived from amino acids. Um, so a large majority of acid, leucine, valine, and then valine, leucine, proline, glycine, homoleucine, sarcosine, things like that. And unfortunately, in this one, they retain their symmetry, retain their stereochemistry in the synthesis, but in the synthesis of all these hydantoins, you lose it completely. So it doesn't affect anything. You get, you get a slight reduction if you have um, if you have stereochemical things. It's probably to do with how you align this group with that bond there. If you got something poked out over there, it doesn't really like it. But um, it doesn't it doesn't stop it. And, gen and generally with this stuff, you want to test the racemic versions because they are e they're more easily accessible and they don't require specialist methods to either buy them because my bank account is not big, or specialist methods to create them because they might not necessarily be present. Jim, while we've got the slide there, yes. um, I don't wish to sound like your supervisor, but um, <laughs> no, just a question regarding the yields. So I'm looking at one that's 13%. I yes. mean, I know it's a MedChem project and the yields don't really matter, but just curious. They do. What, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what's, the, what's the rest of the material? Does it, the starting seal. Okay. It's just uh, there's no, nothing else forms. It is you. You then at the end of your reaction, you've got starting material and products. So it's just yeah. So 70, 87. That's a terrible. Thing. <laughs> 87 percent of that will be starting material, okay. and so that's byproducts. Uh, there's no byproducts whatsoever, and everything's quite easily removable. And for example, you can put it back in. I've done an example where using lower catalyst loadings, where you can get you can you. Uh, you can get 70%, 77% yield with 23% byproduct. You can recover that. Uh, byproduct, you, sorry, 23% recovers start material, and you can put that straight back in the system, and it works fine. So it could just be a. You'll get there eventually if you try. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Question at the back? Yeah, when you were determining your methodologies, yes. the particular process you were following to find the optim optimum conditions for your reactions? Well, basically, you ju you look and see whether there are similar methodologies present for the coupling of this and literature. things like this. Yeah, lots of literature trawling. Lots of things will be quite similar. Generally, you found that these three things used together, which is a lovely metal <laughs> mix-up, actually do work very cooperatively and very well together. And they and then uh, 120 degrees is. <sighs> It's, it's standard, the standard stuff. You go to from 80 to 120, and under rare is for is for copper recycling. Did you vary it to Yes, yeah, yeah. Literally, this process is a table that takes up four pages of just changing every single variable one by one by one by one by one by one, running 12 reactions in parallel and seeing what goes on. And then, yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> Yeah, I was wondering whether all the compounds you've made in those library can actually bind the target. Can you predict that? Can you model it? Uh, not necessarily, no. Um, well, I, I've not. Uh, I've not been involved in the target of mole. I've not been. I, the biological aspect of it is not. I'm not involved with at all. Um, so I know. I know some of the, the binding targets, but only very limited wise. And so it's not like I've been asked to make this compound. I'm being asked to change this compound slightly, and I've gone out and done it. So, um, 
because my prerogative as chairperson to have the last question. Sorry, I've got a just question. It, sorry if you find this one. It's I blame Chris Malloy because he said, "Where is he? Is he about? Is there? Is there?" You mentioned something in your opening lighting presentation about metals. So. You're using you're using heavy metals there. I am, yes. Actually making biologically active compounds. Um, yes. And since I presume you aren't too bothered about that, or is that some a concern, or Cassius Rhodium is low enough? As ruthenium goes, I'm talking the best of a bad bunch, but right. not a not a worse bunch again. Uh, as ruthenium goes, ruthenium is uh, very limited toxicity compared to metals like palladium, rhodium, and rhodium yeah. that are also used in this sort of methodology. And it's also much, much, much less prone to leaching through everything you get. Um, like palladium will go straight through with everything. You'll find trace amounts of palladium 10 steps later in a synthesis, whereas ruthenium generally you get rid of it as it, as it is. And the rest you have to put in to make it work. So you take the hit on this sort of scale that we're working on at this moment in time to see what goes on as, as discovery medchem sort of things go. Good luck for the rest of the PhD. Thank you. Would you like to join me in thanking Jamie? Okay, so uh, now it's the time for um, the lightning presentation. So I'd like to invite six uh, students presenting, if they could just come up. Just to um, alert everyone to the format, so these are two-minute lightning presentations. Again, we don't have a chance uh, to ask questions, but the students would very much appreciate any feedback uh, that you have. We have uh, ample uh, networking opportunity after this session, so please just hold on to your questions there. Um, so first up, I'd like to invite Ahmad. So, cancel. Your time starts now. Uh, no. Yeah. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, how many of you already know about a magic crop that provides staple food for more than half billion people on this planet called cassava? Cassava is one of the most important crops in the world. It is a major crop in the tropical Asia, Africa, and Latin America, mainly cultivated for its starchy root. This little girl looks so happy and excited having cassava root with her. She seems already know that cassava is so precious. However, she may not know if she cannot uh, keep it like that for a long time because the root will get deteriorated rapidly and she cannot eat it anymore. So this problem, known as post-harvest physiological deterioration or PPD, has been a serious problem in the production and the development of cassava. It renders the root unpalatable and unmarketable. 
Kasama PPD is characterized by blue black physical resin of the root as in this figure, and it usually starts within 24 to 48 hours after harvest. A secondary metabolite called scopolatin, which is the novo synthesized and also released from its inactive form scopolin, plays a, plays a key role in the development of cassava PPD. This compound accumulates rapidly in the first 24 hours after harvest, and then when it is oxidized, it will form a blue complex, which indicates that this compound may have a direct contribution to the root discoloration. So in my PhD, I'm looking at the specific role of scopolatin and scopolin in the development of cassava PVD by altering their content in cassava through genetic modification. I hope that through my study, I will be to understand more clearly about the mechanism of cassava PPD in order to tackle this problem, but more importantly, to keep this little girl smile. Thank you, and see you in poster session. Thank you very much. Next up is Jack. Okay, in your own time. Okay, so I'm Jack from the Department of Chemistry. My PhD is looking at quantifying proteins of infectious disease in wastewater for the purposes of analyzing public health. So traditionally, if you wanted to look at public health, you'd have to use something like a questionnaire. You'd have to talk to people, and that requires people to be honest with you and for them to understand their own health. Or if you were looking at uh, drugs of abuse, you'd have to kind of be honest about what drugs they're taking, which people tend to not be. So a better approach would be to look at urine. This is better because people, you can analyze the urine yourself and you can see what's in there. But again, you need volunteers and you can't really do public health of urine very easily because you'd have to go around a large population to get enough urine to do a proper public health study. So wastewater, whilst not glamorous, has the advantage of it is always representative of the whole population because everybody poops. It all goes to the same place. <laughs> The other advantage is, like urine, you can analyze wastewater to see what's in it, so you're not relying on people understanding their own health or trying to hide from you the fact that they take drugs, legal or otherwise. So I'm interested in infectious disease and in, interested in proteins, and so the approach we use is to take wastewater, to take proteins in wastewater, and use an enzyme to digest them into peptides. These are essentially smaller blocks that can be characteristic for that protein and to analyze that protein using liquid chromatography coupled to mass spectrometry. Essentially, the proteins are all together, the peptides are all together in a little packet. We separate them out into individual bundles, and then we analyze them by looking at their accurate masses. So by following through this approach, we can take proteins that are specific for an infectious disease, break them into peptides that are specific to that protein, and then quantify them to, um, to quantify the amount of proteins in the wastewater, and therefore to get an idea of the scale of a disease within a whole population. Uh, I'm at post to slot 12 if you have any other questions or if you want to make any jokes about wastewater. I have heard most of them, so thank you. Thanks, Jack. Next up, Carrie Ann from Physics. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm Carrie ann I work um, in the physics department making optical fibers um, to go inside uh, lungs for patients. At the minute, I'm concentrating on um, imaging fibers, and um, this slide to me is really like my first year and the ups and downs of my first year. 
So um, on the bottom there, uh, the, one, the uh, picture label bar that is onion cells that you can't actually see very clearly on the screen, but they are onion cells. Um, you can see them on the poster if you come see me. Um, that was one of the first fibers I made. Um, we were just trying to make a fiber that had 50,000 cores and get used to the fabrication techniques. So that involves being in the tower. It's quite exciting, drawing hot glass, making something, testing it, all fabulous. So after we've done that, we wanted to optimize the parameters for an imaging fiber. So the way the imaging fiber works, all those circles you see there, they are light guiding cores and a piece of flexible glass that has doped material, which is a refractive index you see here. And the light is confined in there, makes up an image kind of like a mosaic. And that's what we're going to be using to see inside the lungs. And so the first fiber we made had this um, green line. Uh, index, which is nice and handy, it's about, it's kind of cheaper than the material we wanted. So we wanted the step index, which is basically like a well that covers more area. The bigger your well, the more confined your light's going to be, so it's not going to spread out and give you a blurry image. So we made our second fiber, concentrating on these separations and the uh, core sizes. And as you can see in the middle there, it didn't turn out as ideal as we wanted had a look at why by looking at these um, refractive indexes. And um, in the long-term scheme of things, actually it turned out better because we can actually use the cheaper um, glass to make better imaging fibers. So um, yeah, that was the ups and downs of my first year. What turned out to actually be not an ideal fiber actually led to some interesting um, results in the material. Uh, next up is uh, Philip, also from physics. Do you want Chewbacca or Darth Vader? I'll Darth Vader. Darth Vader. <laughs> Are we going to get there, do you think? Darth Vader breathing. <laughs> you chose it. Okay, two minutes. Start. Um, hi everyone, you might have heard of quantum computers. Um, they're computers that can solve certain difficult computing tasks like breaking all the internet encryption and things like that. Um, one particular way of building a quantum computer is using photons in an optical framework. Um, this is a good idea because it's quick, because speed of light. Uh, it works at room temperature, you, you, know, you don't need a big vat of liquid helium or whatever. Um, and it uses relatively simple components like beam splitters, mirrors, so basically fancy prism. Um, and yeah, so it's a good idea, but we need a good source of signal photons. Um, right, how do you make one of those? So this thing here produces about 10 to 28 photons a second. Um, so can I just take that, turn the intensity down till they're coming one at a time? Well, no, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, because once I measure a photon, I destroy it. And the realize it, so once I realize I've got a photon in my system that I can use for my computing needs, um, it's gone, it's destroyed. Um, so a way around that is to produce photons in pairs using a process called spontaneous down conversion. Um, and the way this works is you produce a pair and you measure one of the photons, and then you've got the other floating around in your system to carry out your interference effects that you need to compute with. Um, so our structure consists of a lithium niobate nonlinear crystal with a microfiber attached to it. Um, this is a good idea because the properties of the fiber and the crystal they hybridize, um, and we can use the various dimensions of the 
crystal and the fiber to sort of um, govern and tailor the properties of the photons that are being produced. Um, yeah, so one key um, need is for these computers is to have the photons as identical as possible from our single photon source. Um, and in the idealized world of simulation that I live, we produce that number. So come see me to see why that's meaningful, I guess. Thanks, Philip. Uh, next up is Shahad from Computer Science. And your two minutes starts. Okay, hi. Uh, I'm interested in massive open online courses, or what they call MOOCs. Um, this massive open online course, as the title suggests, is an open online courses with massive numbers of learners uh, from around the, the world where um, educational uh, platforms provide these uh, courses with top universities for free to learners. Um, these courses provide, uh, provide a lot of uh, uh, data for uh, learners. And it's uh, you, uh, the researcher using the field of learning analytics and the techniques in it to analyze the educational learner, uh, the educational uh, data for, for learners. So uh, I'm interested in a research that I've done in, uh, in US. Uh, a team from Stanford University analyzed some data from their courses and uh, find out different engagement, uh, but for, um, uh, different engagement patterns. Uh, uh, <laughs> And um, these engagement patterns were uh, different from, uh, from another study that, that done in the UK um, from, the University of, uh, from the Open University here in the UK. And they referred the difference to uh, the difference in educational pedagogy between the, two between the two countries. So I'm interested now in doing some similar uh, research and analyze the uh, educational data in an Arabic-based MOOC and uh, see not only the educational pedagogy that's different from these studies, but only language and the culture of, of, uh, of the courses. Thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs> and last, Sinead from Chemistry. Okay. You can start. So I'm last, so I can talk for as long as I want. Um, <laughs> so basically, my research is focused on the development of a, a bacterial infection test for hospital-acquired infections and sexually transmitted infections. So traditionally, se sexually transmitted infections, the detection takes up to 10 days from your initial appointment to treatment. So in the intermediate pre period, you can go and infect whoever you want. But what Atlas Genetics my sponsors have done is condense this whole period into only 30 minutes. So how the test works, because you're prepared earlier, uh, you take a clinical sample, you load it into this spot here. You put in your patient details, put it into the machine, which is no bigger than a desktop computer, you press go. That's all the user interaction that it requires. The, the interesting bit in there is actually what goes on. So we do an ultra-rapid PCR, which takes about 25 minutes to amplify the target DNA to a detectable level. This, uh, these amplicons are then hybridized with one of our novel electrochemical probes, which are then treated with a secondary, secondary exonuclease enzyme, which yields small electrochemically active species, which are then free to diffuse to the electrode. The benefit of these systems is that we can use really, really cheap materials. So this is all made of plastic. We've got screen-printed electrodes in here that cost pennies. This whole cartridge itself probably costs less than £10 to make. But traditional methods use optical, uh, really expensive, very delicate lasers, which cost thousands and thousands of pounds. So my work is focused on improving this system. 
So what currently happens is that each DNA probe only has one label on it. I want to introduce multiple labels onto this, and that would allow for increased sensitivity, better signal-to-noise ratios, we can have a look at quantitative and real-time detection of this as well. So strictly speaking, there's two ways in which you can label DNA. You've got five prime labeling, so if you think of it as a strand, you can stick it on the end, or you can stick it inside that actual DNA probe. So what we want to do is have a look at the nuclear bases themselves, and so that the adenosine thymidine to modify those and uh, attach them directly in the DNA themselves. Um, if you want to find out about what we find out, uh, come and have a look at the poster just outside the door, so you've got no excuse to come and have a look. Excellent. Thank you. So much.